there's been a notion or a lot of attention given to this term called codependency. Codependency. I think many of us have heard this if you work in the realm of anything psychological. You've heard this term often. And there's been many books, articles, uh, seminar workshops, college courses, uh, radio, um, focus on this codependency. And you'll even be able to find sermons if they, if they organize by topic on codependency. It's a key buzzword going around our culture. And this term, though, has a wide array of meaning depending on who you talk with. But for the most part, I'm, and I'm really being broad here, the basic idea is that you are somehow overly dependent on the praise or approval of others around you to your own detriment. This is at least how most in our secular world would kind of define it broadly with, of course, many nuances. But as believers here this morning, we look through the lens of scripture and we want to define this codependency in biblical terms, or at least that's what we're trying to do here through this course. We want to diagnose human problems the way the Bible does, as much as we can. Or as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. So that's what we're trying to do here in this course as we look at what our world would call codependency or the approval, the excessive approval and praise of men that we want. But as we look at the Bible, as we look at this excessive desire for approval and the praise of men, I think we would best fit this category under idolatry, the biblical term idolatry, looking to someone or something else to do for me those things that only God can do, idolatry. I think we're familiar with that term here based on who's in this room. But we can easily make an idol, as you know, out of a host of different things, out of many, many different things. But the main one that we'll be focusing on, if you haven't picked up on this already, is the praise and approval of men, the excessive praise and approval of men. An over-excessive desire for the praise and approval of men can be unhealthy and dangerous. And we see this all over scripture, specifically the Pharisees. The Pharisees should come to mind as we think about this. In John 12, 43, we read that the Pharisees loved, loved the praise or the glory of men more than the praise or glory of God. And we'll unpack this further as we go through this course. But this is essentially the same problem that all of us face to one degree or to another. We want the praise. We want the glory. We want the approval of men more than the approval of God. We make an idol out of this approval, this glory, this worship, and we desire it above the one true God. So as we continue to think then about idolatry and people pleasing as idolatry, we have to recognize that there are two sides to this idolatry. There's two sides to it. Just as there are two sides to the same coin, so there is two sides to idolatry. The first side involves neglecting God. 
We neglect God, the God that we are to worship and love above all. And then the other side, as we neglect God, we turn to a cheap substitute or an idol. So in turning to idols, we neglect God and substitute him for a cheap, cheap makeshift of God because we want something more than his glory and praise. Now this idol that we're talking about specifically here again is the, the idol of approval or the glory or the praise of man. And whenever we commit this kind of idolatry, there are two things that evidence itself often. The first is an excessive desire for something. That is, we want something way too much, an inordinate desire. And the second is an excessive fear of losing something. We fear losing something way too much. And this is the evidence that an idol may be in our own heart. So to give some example, people who love money, they love money way too much. That's the one side of the coin. They love it. They want it. It's all in all to them. On the flip side is their fear of losing their wealth. They're terrified of losing their money because it's everything to them. It's an excessive fear of losing their wealth. And one example we see of this in scripture is the rich young ruler that won't follow Jesus because he loves his money way too much. He's terrified of losing it. And he, so he, he fails to follow Jesus as he calls him to. Another example, those who love to be in control excessively, fear being unable to control the circumstances and the people around them. They're, they're terrified of not being able to maintain that control and they get frantic, and they get anxious. Another example, the person who loves pleasure excessively, they're often afraid of missing out. They're afraid of missing out on opportunities to gratify pleasure, their fleshly desires. Now, as we come to people-pleasing, as we're looking at this one here, love of man's approval and excessive desire for it is accompanied by the flip side of the coin, losing someone's approval. You're, you're terrified of it. Rejection is like the worst thing in your mind. You're terrified of losing their approval, their respect, their, their favorable opinion, and being rejected. And often evidences itself also in avoiding conflict. So these are the two sides of idolatry that we need to look at and we need to diagnose the problem biblically as idolatry and not something else. Any questions before continuing on here? This is kind of just laying the groundwork a bit. All right. So now that we understand that people-pleasing is idolatry and it's evidenced by an excessive desire for something and an excessive fear of losing something, we next asked, well, what does it look like? What does it look like to be addicted to the approval of people? And it manifests itself in many different ways. And this is what we'll be looking at for the rest of the morning. What does it look like to be enslaved to the approval of man? And though the following list on your notes here isn't exhaustive, it is meant to convict us, the, the Christian, of pride in his or her heart. So let's go ahead and look at the evidence of enslavement to the fear of man 
Number one, those who struggle with desiring the approval of man often fears the displeasure of man more than the displeasure of God. He fears the displeasure of man more than the fear of God, displeasure of God. So not only does the people pleaser love the wrong thing, but he also fears the wrong thing as well. He loves in excess the approval of people and overly fears not having what he desperately desires. I think we all know this, but fear is a very, very powerful emotion. It can be powerfully good or it can be powerfully bad. For instance, if we fear God, rightly fear him, it can lead us to avoiding the consequences of breaking his law because we fear him rightly. But as we know, fear can also be bad. It can be extremely bad as it can lead us to irrational thoughts and ungrounded behavior and wild suspicions of all that is untrue. And we know from Proverbs 29, 25, that the fear of man brings a snare. It brings a snare. It traps you. It's dangerous. But in what way is it a snare? In what way is the fear of man a snare? Well, it's considered the example found in John 12, and this is on your notes, I believe. John 12, verses 42 and 43. We read here, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, that is Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Here we find the leaders of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish council, and they apparently believed in Jesus. They believed in him to be the Messiah, but they would not publicly identify with him. It would appear their fears of others were far more superior than their belief in Jesus. So the fear of man here lays a snare. It, it traps us. It keeps us from following Jesus as we should. It keeps us from identifying with Jesus as it did with Peter in the courtyard. So, in the words of Priola, the love of man's approval is inextricably bound to the fear of man's disapproval. The two are tied hand in hand. The love of man's approval and the fear of man's disapproval. So this sin of pleasing people, this idol, will often manifest itself in these following thoughts. I'm not prepared to, to meet this person. I'm not ready to meet this person. Or, or what does he or she think of me? Or, or I might make a fool of myself if I talk to them. I might not know the right thing to say. It might also manifest itself in, you know, I can't reveal too much of myself. Or, or they'll know what I'm really like and, you know, they'll reject me. I can remember having many, many of these thoughts in high school all the time. Like constantly perpetuating fear of what others thought of me in these ways. Or, you know, this thought, if I have to get away from this person as quickly as possible, this conversation went well, and I'm going to get away from it before, you know, I ruin it by saying something dumb. Or I have to be careful not to say anything that might get me into a conflict. 
And so while the sin of people-pleasing might look like a virtue of, you know, perhaps being a peacemaker, it is not. A peacemaker is willing to look long, enduring immediate discomfort, and even rejection in order to bring about true, lasting peace. A people-pleaser, on the other hand, is so afraid of disapproval that conflict must be avoided at all costs. And it often, in, in the end, it leads to bitterness and resentment towards the other person. So this is the first characteristic of a people-pleaser. It's that he fears man more than he does God. As we go through this, feel free to stop me after each point if you have a comment or question on this. All right, but second, on the flip side of that coin, he desires the praise of man above the praise of God. Oftentimes, the people-pleaser is so blind to his own enslavement to the fear of man that they can only see their own resume, their own resume that they've worked so hard to build. They might say something like, look, don't you see all the things that I do for God, how I serve others, my neighbors, my family? I always live for God. People-pleasing is not my struggle. And unfortunately, this is often very like the self-delusion demonstrated by, perhaps, the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, verses 5 through 7, we read, They do everything, that is the Pharisees, they do everything to be seen by others. They enlarge their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. Okay, a word on that, phylacteries. Does anyone know what that actually means here? We got two people, seminary, PhD students. You guys remember what that is? I, didn't, I had no idea what it was when I went over it the first time. But it's, it's the small square leather boxes containing slips inscribed with scriptural passages and traditionally worn on the left arm of Jewish men, especially adherents of Orthodox Judaism for their, for their morning prayers. It was a sign that you were a holy man. You were displaying that to everybody. You had the scripture on you. And so they're, they're doing this for the approval of men. They love the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by people. So while it looks like, while it looks like they're doing good deeds for the glory of God in their heart of hearts, their true motives, they're doing it for the praise of men. And Jesus exposes this here. Furthermore, in Matthew 6, 1 through 5, we read, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That ought not be your motive. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners, to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
Again here, we're given the warning to practice our righteousness for the glory of God and not the approval of men or the praise of men. Those who do these things, their motives and their intentions for the praise and glory of men, will not receive God's approval or his praise. For God sees the heart and the intentions of the person. He sees right through them. So for those who are enslaved with these intentions and motives of doing good things for people are just like the Pharisees. They're hypocrites. They are Pharisees at heart whose service is ultimately performance-based for man and not worship to God. And in one sense or another, I think we all struggle with this. Am I really doing this for God or am I really doing this for the approval of man? And I think I've caught myself asking this question whenever, you know, I'm touting my, my good deeds to my wife when, you know, I list off all the things that I've done. And she should be more appreciative of her husband who's done X, Y, and Z. Was I really doing it for, for God or was I doing it for my wife and to get her to do something else for me? You know, you know I think we're, we're faced with these things all the time, like, oh, if only they knew, if only they knew, then they, they would be way more appreciative or thankful or they would do more for me. These are types of thoughts that betray us and we have to be careful to watch out for them. Anything on this point before continuing? All right. Continuing on, people pleasing may also manifest itself in studying what it takes to please man as much as or more than what it takes to please God. So good focus and attention is expended by the people pleaser on dissecting the words, the, the inflections, the mannerisms, the behaviors, you, you know, the undertones and the body language and possible double meanings of others in conversation. They're constantly just consumed with, oh, I wonder if that person liked me. Did they take it the right way? And it just, it just encompasses the entirety of their being. They're worried about it all the time. And oftentimes this results in an excessively large sensitivity to, to the attitudes and the moods of the people they're trying to please. Always trying to read approval or, or disapproval from that person. And of course, of course, there is a positive side to this, right? And that is being rightly sensitive to the needs of others, especially when they are concealed in slightly veiled ways. The difference, though, is the people-pleaser is wanting self-centered goals to be thought well of when he or she is performing the good deeds rather than ministering to the person for the glory of God. Proverbs 23 gives us the illustration of a stingy and a greedy man that we are warned to avoid. We're to avoid eating his offer to eat and drink, or of the delicacies of his table. And if you look on your notes, because as verse 7 states, he is like one who is inwardly calculating, tallying the cost, and his heart is not with you. So verse 8 says, your compliments will be wasted because his heart is entirely focused on himself. So again, our, our proper motivation is to be engaged 
with others so that God is magnified and our own perceived greatness is minimized. That is our desire above all. We don't do what we do to please man. We don't keep costs. We don't keep tabs. We serve others for the glory of God. Number four, speaking in ways designed to entice and flatter others into thinking well of you. This is another way that it might evidence itself. People pleasing is always marketing self in every single context. It's always about marketing yourself to others. Like a filter on your phone that perhaps, you know, enhances and glamorizes the person in the photo, the people pleaser is always conscious about his, how his self-perception can be enhanced in the given situation by the way he or she speaks or presents himself. So they often flatter and, and dish out untrue or exaggerated praise in order to stroke the egos of those around them and to draw them in to themselves. In the ancient Greek, there was a saying, the opposite of a friend is a flatterer. <laughs> the truth is that in flattery, a Trojan horse can be marching in to what appears to be a genuine relationship only to discover later on the invasion of self-centered intentions and expectations. But for the believer, we should have the mindset that Paul calls us to have in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, and 5. And he tells us, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So faithful gospel witness by each and every Christian should be characterized by, of course, pleasing God and not men. God's examination of the heart is what matters above all else. And yet the people pleaser thinks that this is the very thing that he can hide from everyone. And this camel would often evidence itself in certain communication marked by the following characteristics. The people pleaser rarely confronts sin in the life of another believer. They don't want their disapproval or to cause conflict or to be thought ill of, so they won't confront the sin at all. They'll just let it be. They'll rarely challenge or even question the opinion of others, even if it might not be grounded in biblical wisdom. They might even prematurely terminate conflicts just by giving in, withdrawing, or just changing the subject. They rarely reveal to others the truth about who he really is inside and his struggles with certain sins. They often steer conversations away from those topics that might cause others to really know what he or she is really like on the inside. They might even shade the truth, or another word for that is lie. They might lie in order not to offend others. They find clever ways to subtly introduce their accomplishments into conversations. And my siblings often call this humble bragging. Oh, nice humble brag. I see what you did there. You're, you're lifting yourself up in this very subtle way. 
the person might fit you. I mean, they give me that one all the time, so you know, I, I might be struggle with that one. Um, they fish for compliments. They frequently put themselves down and hope that others will disagree with his purposely exaggerated negative self-assessment. And these are all camouflaged ways that we try to people-please and elevate ourselves. And so these are ways of speaking in order to entice and flatter others into thinking well of you by pleasing them in these, in these subtle ways. Next, people-pleasers may evidence themselves by becoming a respecter of persons. By becoming a respecter of persons. Another way of saying this, um, in showing partiality. In showing partiality. Being a people-pleaser who is controlled by the fear of man inherently breaks the spirit of James too, by committing a camouflaged version of the sin of partiality. I'll go ahead and read James 2 in case we're not familiar with this, but he writes, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, and if you look with favor on the one wearing fine clothes and say, hey, you sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, hey, you stand over there, sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In James 2 here, we see that the rich man is given the VIP treatment. He brings something valuable materially to the people there. And so he's, he's treated with favoritism, with partiality. And we see the poor man being treated with contempt. People-pleasing has this very same heart, but we're better at valuing our intentions and our motives. The person inappropriately judges people based on their perceived value to their own life. Accepting them, drawing them in close, especially when they have something to benefit them. But on the flip side of that as well, they purposely avoid those who are deemed not to be worth their time or effort. They're just a nuisance. They're in their way. And they avoid those who have nothing to offer. I think this is something we can all struggle with. Again, we can, we can treat people with partiality in these ways. This person has nothing to offer me. So I'm just going to avoid them at all costs. I'm not going to greet them. They got nothing for me. And instead, I'm going to go spend all my time with these people who I can get something from. We might not think in those terms, but sometimes it's the way we can act and how others perceive our actions as well. Any questions on these ones up to this point? One, two, three, four, five. All right, we'll continue on then. Number six, people-pleasing can often evidence itself in being oversensitive, oversensitive to correction, to reproof, uh, and other illusions of dissatisfaction of people around them. So the people-pleaser overreacts to any hint of disapproval. He feels a pinprick as keenly as a knife in the back. He is oversensitive because he is overconsumed about his own glory 
or popularity. Constructive criticism or encouragement to grow in a particular area are often taken as attacks from naysayers who reject his very identity. The hypersensitivity is nothing less than pride, and pride is at the very hearts of people pleasing. Richard Baxter, a well-known Puritan pastor in England from 400 years ago, wrote, Pride causes men to hate reproof. The proud are presumptuous in finding faults with others, but do not love the person who reproves them, though it is a duty which God himself commands as an expression of love and is contrary to hatred. Yet it will make a proud man to become your enemy. It embitters their hearts, and they consider themselves to be injured, and they will bear a grudge against you for it, as though you were their enemy. It comes from Richard Baxter, and we do well to take his words to heart. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8 speaks also to this truth. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. So in response to this, we are encouraged to assume our own sinfulness, and to assume that it will be spotted by others, and then to learn to welcome the constructive rebuke, again, key word, constructive rebuke of your fellow believers. This is the path of wisdom that is circumvented by the people pleaser. Those who people please and are hypersensitive to correction will avoid this at all costs. And so again, we're encouraged to assume our sinfulness and to welcome the rebuke and correction of others. Not an easy thing to do because we're prideful. We have pride beyond measure. And every time I receive any constructive word from my wife, I feel it rise up within my soul. And it just reminds me that, you know, Josh, you're a very prideful person and you need to take a step back. Is, is what she's saying valid? Is it true? And more often than not, it is. It is true. And I hate to say that, but uh, I think we're all encouraged whenever we receive reproof from anybody to, to step back. Is this true? And then to, if we have questions about that, to humbly ask others about that same word of correction. You know, someone said this. Is this, is this true of me? Do I struggle in this area of my life, in this sin? Or, or maybe are they just not seeing it right? So if we ever have questions, being humble enough to inquire further about our own inadequacies and our own weaknesses. Not easy to do because we're often very proud, independent, individualistic people here in America. And uh, we need to fight against that because the Bible calls us to do so. Continuing on to seven, rendering eye service to man rather than inwardly rendering sincere heart ministry to the Lord. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 5 through 7, bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord, there's the key again, as to the Lord, not to man. And then he writes again in Colossians 3.22, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, 
as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Eye service, if done simply under strict surveillance and merely for the sake of appearance, is the opposite of sincere, heartfelt service as an act of worship to the Lord. Eye service makes life a performance played by actors and actresses. It's completely and utterly fake. Moving on to eight here, as I'm running out of time. Selfishly using the wisdom, abilities, and gifts given for God's glory and the benefits of others for his own glory and personal benefits. Again, this is overlapping with a lot of them. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The people pleaser is a person who has come to believe the lie that whatever good that is in his life is from his own accomplishment or has arisen from his own inherent uniqueness. But we remember from James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. So as we speak about musical abilities or mental abilities or work achievements or sharp critical thinking or a wide knowledge base around an array of topics, rather than attributing it to ourselves, we must attribute it to God's providential kindness and, and learn to praise him. For the people pleaser will only use these for own self-gain and self-promotion rather than pointing to the God who has given all to him. So as we've gone through all of these evidences of what a people pleaser might look like, you might have this, this thought that occurred in your head. You know, are you suggesting that we are to have 100% pure motives, always free of personally motivated desires when we engage with people? And if so, that sounds impossible. We are sinners and we will continue to sin but let's not discount the transforming power of the gospel in the hearts of people-pleasers like, like us, all of us here this morning. God changes people, and he longs to see our hearts set free from this, this life-dominating idol as we seek to please the Lord together. So next week, we'll, we'll try to answer the question, is it ever right to please people? It almost sounds like this is like terribly bad, wrong all the time. Um, but we're going to look, look at the flip side. Is it ever right to please people? And yes, the answer is yes. And we'll be looking at that and discerning between a right way to please people versus a wrong way to please people. Because I think we can get confused and swing pendulum when the Bible says yes to both. Um, yes, please people. No, don't please people. <laughs> so we'll look at that next week.